Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Bernard Donoghue, CEO of Alva. We discuss what the fast approaching end of restrictions mean for attractions, how to balance digital engagement with an overseas audience, and what these past 15 months have really been like for Bernard personally. If you like what you hear, subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Bernard, I am so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. It's my absolute pleasure. It was it was a choice between you uh, and a meeting with four MPs. So here we are. Uh, well, I mean, I have to say, I'm clearly <laughs> the better choice here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so as ever, we're going to start off with our icebreaker questions. If you had a time machine and you could travel backwards or forwards, what year would you go to and why? Oh, good Lord. Uh, but Sorry, by the way, this reminds me of a brilliant line by Sandy Toxvig. She was in a cafe in York once and there was a sign saying, we serve tea at all times. So she asked for a tea in the Renaissance <laughs> uh, and they didn't understand her. Um, I don't, wow, I don't know. Um I th- I think possibly in the 1920s, because you're just at the cusp of so many things. You're at the tail end of the Edwardian period, so you've, you've got all of that. And then you're at the cusp of electricity and technology and radio and aeroplanes, so probably then. We're, we're hearing a lot about it being like the Roaring Twenties as well, aren't we, once we get through all of this too. So it's probably quite current that you've chosen that as well. Yeah. And obviously flapper dresses, because all of those were completely beautiful. That I mean, I would be down with that. No, I, seriously, I do look good in beads. It's true. <laughs> I could see that about you. You've got that look. <laughs> Great. OK. Um, if you were a WWF wrestler, which I can see, actually, I feel like you've got the look of a wrestler about you as well. Maybe not in beads. What would your entrance song be? Um for years, by the way, I used to be a trustee of WWF UK and all of my friends just assumed that I was had a sort of parallel existence in spandex somewhere. <laughs> and I had, to, <laughs> I had to remind them that actually, no, it was about conservation. Um, oh, what would it be? Something from RuPaul's Drag Race, actually, because they're always fantastic. Yeah, when they come back on the, when they come back on the stage at the end, that's the music. Okay. Something really flamboyant, I feel like. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can strut. I mean, I know strutting is not necessarily a WWF thing, but, you know, presence is all. Absolutely. We can make it a thing. It can be whatever we want. Thank you. Okay. And if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Um, if I was 20, I think my advice to my 20-year-old self would be, Make this sounds a bit professional. Um, just make loads and loads of connections, network, network madly, even though, and this will come as a bit of a surprise, even though I'm an introvert, um, get out there and network because it suddenly dawned on me in the last few years that you know, when I was when I was in my 20s, I was a campaigner, I was a you know, a young lobbyist, and I, I worked for disability charities. And all the people who did the same kind of job as me then are all chief executives like me now. And of course, that makes sense, because you kind of grow through the ranks. So now I've got a kind of peer group of lots of chief executives in lots of very, very different 
spheres and realms. And it's been brilliant because we've all kind of come through the ranks together and, you know, in good times and bad. And now we've got a kind of ready-made oven-roasted peer group that we can all rely on. There's about six of us. So I think that, and B, take your job seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Oh, it's good advice. That's really good advice. It's really, the networking thing is really interesting. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, what what has been the thing that, what's been the one thing that I've invested the most in over the last few years that has made the biggest difference to my business? And I completely agree with you. And I said, it is about building your network and it's about getting out there and making those connections because such incredible things come from knowing such a variety of different people in in all kinds of sectors you just never know what kind of opportunities and doors are going to be open for you from doing that and also you just can't grow a business on your own or do anything on your own you need that peer support around you so yeah and 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 you're absolutely right The, the key to that is knowing people who are not like you and in businesses which are not like yours so in Alva for example I hear it time and time again that museums and galleries don't actually learn much from other museums and galleries because they're all kind of in the same boats. And cathedrals don't learn much from other cathedrals, but they will learn things from zoos or Harry yes. Potter or Warner Brothers. So th- places that are very different to them and therefore come at an issue from a very different perspective, that's where you learn most. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you on that one as well. That might come up later, actually, in our chat. Okay, Last one, but it's your one. What's your unpopular opinion? I hate the phrases going forward uh, and very much, as in I am very much looking forward to it or I'm very much committed to this. I hate those phrases with a passion, whereas I'm. it's clear other people don't. Uh, they would be capital punishments um, wow. when I took over the ro- rule. Um, what's another unpopular opinion? Uh, I cannot see how people can watch Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> I don't get it. Absolutely don't get it at all. And, oh, oh, here's one, actually, and it's only because it was his birthday last week. I have never understood Bob Dylan and his popularity. Wow. Gosh, yeah. that's quite a strong one. Yeah, don't get it. Okay. You know, glad he's around. Glad he's there. Not for me, thank you. I like that. Bob Dylan and Jeremy Clarkson was not a mix I was expecting to get on the podcast today either. They're not, they're not a duo that have ever performed together, <laughs> uh, as far as I'm aware, or likely to. So, um, so it's probably just as well. It wouldn't make either of them even more appealing to you, though, would it? Not really. No, I think I would have to take out a restraining order if we decided that they wanted to come round. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's see what our let's see what our listeners think. Um, Jeremy Clarkson fans out there, I don't know. It's not my cup of tea. Tweet us and let us know what you think about that. Now, Bernard, I don't even know where to start with this list. So, Mayor of London's Cultural Ambassador, uh, CEO of Alva, Co-Chair of the London Tourism Recovery Board, Chair of Lift Festival, and Trustee of People's History Museums. Quite an impressive list that you've got going on there. What I want to know is where where did it actually begin, though? So where did your connection with kind of cultural heritage and attractions organisations start? I've always absolutely loved... So I'm kind of being paid for all the things that I would do at a weekend. Nice. Um, so, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would take us around 
national trust properties and English heritage properties and, you know, stately homes and places like that. So the first place that I went to was Wadsden Manor, uh, which if people don't know it, it's the maddest, most beautiful Loire Valley style chateau, but in the Vale of Aylesbury, just outside Aylesbury, built by the Rothschilds as kind of an entertaining pad absolutely beautiful absolutely stunning And my first stately home well that's kind of a stately home the first stately home is Blenheim Palace and I just got the bug and I just have loved history heritage visitor attractions since I was a kid I went off to do political jobs uh, and then back in 97 I joined Visit Britain as their first ever head of government affairs and not quite a lobbyist because it's a government agency and so you're not allowed to be called a lobbyist but it was a it was all but a lobbyist and that just opened my eyes to tourism and then visitor attractions um and on the cultural culture side theater side theater has always been a complete passion so um yeah I, I stepped down this year as as chair of lift london international festival of theater after 11 years uh, and i'm just about to go onto the board of the bristol old vic so my my theater passion continues I love that. I love that, that what you said, I get paid to do all the things that I would love to do at the weekend. What a fantastic role to be in. You really. It's, it's absolutely true. If I, <clears throat> I should show you my wallet, actually. My wallet is full of membership cards, as in 30 of them. So occasionally I'll look at my wallet and think, this is, this is money laundering, essentially. I'm being paid by these all, <laughs> and then I'm paying them back in return. This, this is a <laughs> circular economy. <laughs> I love that. That's one of the things that you've done really well throughout the pandemic is, you know, you've been so supportive and you've been kind of, you know, really proactive on Twitter about saying to people, look, if you want these places to still be around when we come out of this, buy the membership, you know, buy something from their shop when their shops are open or buy something from them online. And I think that was it's been such a positive message to send out the whole way through. So not money laundering, supportive, being very supportive in your role. You'd have to talk to my bank manager because some some days it was like money laundering. <laughs> so I I kind of there's there's loads of things that I want to talk about about going forward, even though you don't like that. Um, but what I want to go back is a little bit in the past as well. So I really want to talk about what it's been like for you personally because I think you you have been a real kind of pillar of strength to the sector and a huge support. And I think that as wonderful as that's been that can bring its own kind of challenges on yourself as well. You know, ultimately you're the person that's putting out this, this kind of positive message all the time and being really actively encouraging. But I can imagine that's had a lot of pressures and challenges for you personally as well. What, what has it been like the last 15 months? How have you kind of motivated yourself to be kind of upbeat and positive throughout all of this? Well, that, well that's very kind. First of all, thank you. Um, I think I'd divide it between last March until Christmas, and then sort of Christmas onwards. Mm. So last March until Christmas, there was a sense of, of really being able to cope because adrenaline was getting you through. Yeah. It, was all, it was all novel and new. And I've always thrived in crisis management. So in all the roles that I've had over the last sort of 20 years, crisis management has been at the heart of that, whether it's that's about um, you know actively managing crises or the corporate PR response or being a spokesperson or or, or whatever. So in in some ways, um, I sort of thrived on all of that 
through adrenaline. It's been much, much more draining and exhausting since Christmas. And I think that's probably the same for everybody, actually. Mm. But we've gone through it again. And actually, it's it's no longer new and it's no longer novel. And now it's just sort of sapping. I have often felt on, a, on almost a kind of daily basis and this is just honest, I'm not exaggerating, that there's a there's a quite a lot resting on my shoulders and it feels quite lonely because the advice from government has been um, so inconsistent and so unclear and often contradictory that there's a small group of about sort of three or four of us in the tourism sector who've had to daily unpick all of that and interpret it for our respective sectors. And... I know that if I weren't doing that, then it just wouldn't get done for us. It would probably get done somewhere at somehow at some point. But as you know, I do a daily bulletin. So it goes out every evening at six o'clock with the, with the latest information. So there's a, there's a real sense of I need to get this out and get it done every day. And so I've made a kind of rod for my own back, really, because there is nothing that I would love more than stop doing these bulletins. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, you know that's not possible while we're still in a state of flux. So uh, it's been a bit lonely. It's been odd working from home when normally I would be you know a consummate traveller and visit loads of my members around the country. Uh, it's been a lot of pressure, but the feedback from people about the the, the vital nature of the information and the advocacy and all the rest of it and the achievements actually has been extraordinary i don't i don't think my myself my work has ever been more exposed than it has in the course of the last 15 months sometimes that felt scary and sometimes that's felt brilliant you think as well it's it's never been more celebrated as well because you have had so much support from the sector you know there are a lot of people looking to you to you like you say you deliver in daily bulletins you've been doing incredible webinars with alva you know so regularly you've opened those up to non-members as well so everybody can benefit from the knowledge on them you know there's a lot of eyes on you as well that's a lot of pressure but i think you know from a positive perspective what i see being delivered back to you is nothing but encouragement you know, everybody has been so incredibly supportive of what you're doing and so grateful for the things that you're doing for them. I think that's been really lovely to see. Yeah, it, it absolutely has. And, it, and and in particular from those organisations and businesses who, who, as you say, are not members of Alva. I mean, I, I took the decision on, on kind of day one that although Alva is a tiny organisation and people will probably be really surprised, there's me and one other member of staff. Wow. We're just I'm surprised. Two- we're just two people. Um, and Lucy is brilliant. She's our finance and business manager. And she, but she's living in Norwich. So, uh, and I'm here in London. And it's just the two of us. So it's, you know, a tiny organisation. So we're spread very, very thin. But given the nature of our members and my role over years in getting high-level meetings with government and all of that, I just thought, well, we're in a leadership role here. We should use that for the benefit of everybody. Let's not get, let's be generous. You know, let's not be parochial. And so uh, made the decision to commission all the research and give it out for free. And that visitor sentiment research has just been vital. It was one of the best things that we did. Uh, open up our webinars to everybody. If anybody wants a bulletin, they can go on the mailing list, whether they're members of Alva or not, because... Um, there was the analogy, it's been used a lot of times, but I think it's true, 
um, we're not actually all in the same boat. We're all in the same storm, but we're in very, very different boats. And some are bigger and, you know, more stable than others. Now, we happen to be in a relatively stable, well-structured boat. So I think it's beholden on me and us to, to try and help everybody as much as possible. I am absolutely gobsmacked that it's just the two of you. I did not even—I did not know that myself. And I think that's an incredible achievement, what you've been doing, just the two of you to organise all of that. Well, hats off to you both. There. It's what? exhausting. I mean, look at me. I'm actually 27 <laughs> in real life. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's what I tell everyone, Bernard. <laughs> Gosh, it really has surprised me. What do you... Just go back, because you said about... Um, you know, you're a big traveller. You would you, you would be out and about all over the place, or up and down the country, I'm sure. What do you think that you'll take away as a positive from from the time that you spent working at home? Are there any kind of changes that you'll make to your to your working habits? So, so for example, I, I would commute to my office on a daily basis. I would often be out in, in London or, or all over the place doing meetings. And now I start to think, well, some of those some of them I'm really missing, but some of them actually a bit, of, probably a bit unnecessary. You know, we can cut down on, on, you know, the fuels that we're burning we can cut down on the time that we have. And I've actually quite enjoyed having a little bit more personal time to do things like eating better because, you know, you don't eat that well when you're traveling or, mm. or doing a little bit more exercise. Have you found that there's some positive things that you can take from this that you'd continue yeah, there's a number. I mean, one was we made a decision. We used to have an office in Somerset House on the Strand, a beautiful, beautiful uh, room in, you know, grade one listed former palace, absolutely gorgeous, looking down onto the piazza currently wow. covered in trees. But I couldn't justify the cost because Lucy, my colleague, went over to Norwich to be near her parents. Um, we very sadly lost one of our colleagues. We used to, There used to be three of us in the office, um, and uh, we lost one of our colleagues uh, last year to to cancer, um, and so there were just the the two of us. And I thought I can't I can't justify an office just for me, lovely though it is. So actually, we haven't had an office; we've given it up, which means that I am for the foreseeable future working at home. Um, yeah, there are there are plus things to that. Um, well, this is a plus and a minus. This is no particular priority order. We've got a cat, Tom. He's a Battersea cat. He's he just. I think he's going to go into trauma whenever we leave the house. Oh gosh, yeah. He's been. You know, we've been around twenty four seven. We are now more grateful. When I say we, this isn't a royal we. This is me and my partner. We're now more grateful than we ever thought possible to have a garden in central London. That's just that's just been fantastic. But I am looking forward to getting back to some degree of working normality because I I have to say I've never worked longer or harder than I have over the course of the last 15 months so it's been exhausting and in a normal day I would probably have five or six at least one hour zoom meetings back to back and then write the bulletin at six o'clock in the evening so Typically from about, I'm working from about 7.30 in the morning until about 7 in the evening. Now, I, I was doing a bit of that pre-COVID, um, but it's it's pretty unsustainable. So I'd like to get back to a degree of normality. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that the difference between having multiple kind of face-to-face meetings during the day is very different to the Zoom meetings. You, you tend to, 
I don't know about you, but my diary gets crazy. And I look and I think I've got four back to back and there's no time to process in between. And it's that cognitive overload. Whereas if you had kind of back to back face to face meetings, you don't get the same kind of drained feeling. So, yeah, I, I, I really feel you on that. It's definitely been longer working hours for for us here as well so I really sympathize and and also I mean and the meetings that I'm having bluntly you can't coast because either either I'm the guest speaker so you know you can't wing it um or it's a meeting with ministers or sage or public health England uh and so you know so it's serious grown-up stuff yeah so um, you can't step back. You can't just switch off. You can't think I'm going to coast this for half an hour and hope that nobody asks me a question because they're not those kind of meetings. No, you can't switch off your Zoom and quickly grab a cup of tea and a biscuit while everyone else is talking, can you? It's just not it's yeah. not the done thing. It's not really, no. <laughs> well, that was a good segue into something that's going to happen today. So we are recording this and it is the 7th of June. Um, there are reports that Matt Hancock is going to give us another COVID statement this afternoon. And potentially that is about the dates that we are due to be opening up with no restrictions. Now, I I want to kind of ask you a little bit about what that means for attractions and what what we could what we could potentially now be looking at so we are hopefully coming through to the other side the vaccine program is is doing phenomenal things um but what does this kind of fast approach in end to restrictions mean for attractions now and and do you think that we're going to see this extended it's a, it's a really good question and um i've been talking to about five or six chief execs over the course of the weekend just about guidance and advice so I think there are two, two very significant things. And at first glance, they're in contradiction with each other. So the first is that the longer we have social distancing measures and face mask use and mitigation measures in place, the longer it will take for the sector to recover. And when we have businesses, whether it's a hotel, a bar, a restaurant, a theatre or an attraction, when we have those businesses opening at one third capacity, None of them are making a profit. Mm. You know, actually, they're, they're opening for PR purposes. And, and in order to achieve uh, full of f- visitor figures uh, down the track. So no one's, no one's operating profitably. So getting those back up and running is really critical. But we know from all of our visitor sentiments that um, still 80%, 80, 80% of the British public are uneasy or cautious about those very mitigation measures like social distancing and face mask use uh, being eased too early. So visitor attractions are faced with a real dilemma, I think, which is if, um, if it's announced that on the 21st of June all social distancing measures are lifted throughout England and therefore visitor attractions can up the numbers, don't have to do face mask use, measures abandon social distancing still the vast majority of their visitors won't like that and will feel uncomfortable Uh, and a tiny minority will think they're in bliss and think that they're liberated and and all the rest of it so my advice has been to visitor attractions you and your visitors have to be the ultimate arbiter of the visitor experience and it may well be that you have to keep social distancing and face mask use measures in place way beyond the 21st of September, because that's what the public wants. 
So even though you're technically allowed to get rid of those things by government, actually take, take your lead from the public because they're going to be the ultimate arbiters. So those things are potentially in contradiction with each other. So one of the things I'm constructing literally this week is some ALVA national advice to visitor attractions so that front of house staff can basically say to an irate guest on the 22nd of June, I know government has just announced that, but actually we're adhering to ALVA national advice in order that they don't get then that confrontational pushback from members of the public. Because I genuinely, I genuinely feel that the loudest voices are for liberation, but the quietest voices are for care, safety, sensible precautions. Uh, and we need to manage that really, really carefully. That's really difficult challenge, isn't it, for front of house staff that will be, you know, in that position of having to push back on people. There will, be, I, you know, I can, I can, I can kind of see it in my head happening. You know, there's a, an encounter where people are, you know, angry about the fact that they're being told that they still have to wear their mask. Yet, you know, the government has said that they don't need to do this anymore. I can't imagine how difficult that's going to be. So, I think what you're what you're putting in place is a really valuable kind of asset for the organisations to have. We saw some examples, relatively limited, but we saw some examples of poor behaviour on the part of the public last year when attractions reopened. For, for, frankly, I mean, you know, it's not it's not an excuse, but it is understandable. They, like us, were um, tired, fraught, um, you know, c- quick to anger, um, end of their tether and they just wanted to get out and you know be in in nice places and we've seen some of that poor behavior on the part of the public again this time around as indoor and outdoor attractions but honestly for every one person who pushes back saying you know don't make me wear a mask you know don't manage my social distancing there are nine others watching saying well done you you're doing exactly the right thing yeah. so so that, that I think should be the kind of barometer of safety and and how does this work with you know, what we want to see is attractions open and open at full capacity. But we obviously have got this challenge around overseas visitors and many of them not being able to come here, many of them not feeling safe to come here at the moment, understandably. You know, how do attractions kind of manage that? You know, if they are, if they can open at full capacity, is the reality that they're not going to be at full capacity because we just don't have that influx of people that we need? Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, bluntly, um, there are some visitor attractions in the UK, uh, and just off the top of my head, there are places like um, the British Museum, Edinburgh Castle, Stonehenge, Westminster Abbey, St Paul's Cathedral, Tower of London, yeah. that are so heavily dependent on overseas visitors, inbound visitors coming from the rest of the world, that even the best ever staycation this summer won't help them repair their balance sheets. So we've made it really clear to, to ministers Uh, I took the Minister for London and the Minister for Tourism uh, round four visitor attractions in London a couple of weeks ago uh, to Westminster Abbey, Tower of London, London Transport Museum and the Royal Opera House. And each one showed them what a COVID-safe welcome and visitor experience looks like. So they were comfortable with that, but also made it clear to them that, you know, some of those, particularly the Royal Opera House, Tower of London, Westminster Abbey, are so dependent on inbound visitors that they will require additional support way beyond the rest of the sector to really recover sustainably because their visitors, their market, won't come back in any meaningful numbers until next year. 
So it was it was really to to peg to ministers, even if you lift all restrictions on the 21st of June, that's not the end of the story. Yeah, yeah, and you have to be prepared to give more support past that point as well. Yeah. So those attractions in particular that do rely really heavily on overseas um, visitors what can they start to think about putting in place at this point? I I know there are many attractions that have put on kind of um, lots of digital events or, or, you know, things that things that people can engage with online. Do you see that continuing hugely for the rest of the year and then into kind of 2022 as well? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, one of the, um, I mean, we've talked about this actually at the VAC conference that um, one of the, one of the great achievements of last year was um, the explosion in digital content. And not, and not just the amount of it, but the diversity and the brilliance and the innovative use of, of digital. And I think because the last year has been, you know, sort of um, chaotic and odd and no holds barred, um, it's just liberated a lot of organisations to take risks with their programming and their content and their decision making in a way that they would never have conceived of before. And to speed up some of their decision making and just, you know, to think, actually, let's just do it and see what happens. And I think the digital explosion has been absolutely phenomenal. So, you know, downloadable jigsaws and recipe books and, you know, maps and behind the scenes tours and going up into the attic of buildings and, you know, into the archive, all of that. Absolutely phenomenal. It hasn't particularly connected with audiences who weren't already interested in those buildings so it's had some public engagement successes but not massive but what it has made people do is get on the customer journey so if they're seeing the stuff online they'll one day aspire to be and stand there on the spot because it it can't replace the you know the actual physical experience of, of being there and in terms of digital output at the bristol old vic um, and at the London Symphony Orchestra, they've both made decisions recently that in addition to their live performances, they're going to broadcast their performances on digital as well. So you can, so if you're in Tokyo or Lusaka or, you know, San Francisco, you can s- subscribe to watch these performances, a bit like Netflix subscription. So, you know, you buy a book of 10 performances um, at reduced cost. What this means, of course, is that, those theatres, that that orchestra is getting a whole new audience who are paying money that they never had before, but they're also starting them on a customer journey. So that person in Tokyo one day, hopefully, will want to stand in the Bristol Old Vic and see where David Garrick performed. So you're getting them on that customer journey whilst also monetizing it as well. And I think that's probably the biggest evolution and change to businesses in the course of the last year we may have got round to it in about three or four years time but all of that has just been sort of contracted and sped up in an extraordinary way it's 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 what you said it's about risk taking because I can remember having this conversation with Laura Crossley from the National Football Museum and they came on the podcast to talk about their podcast. And they said that actually, you know, it was one of the things, it was something they'd been talking about for ages. They were going to do it. And then, you know, things kept getting in the way. But ultimately, they just got to a point where they're like, let's just try it. You know, yeah. we let's just throw something at it. Let's see if it sticks and let's just do it. And I kind of, I love that that attitude has been taken by so many different organizations this year. 
And it's just, it's propelled them forward in a digital digital sense because, you know, let's just try it. Who knows what's going to happen? None of us had a clue what was going to happen last March. So that whole attitude about risk-taking, I think, is really important. And I'd, I'd really like to see that continue as well. Yeah, me, me too. I mean, um, you know, two years ago, people would have thought it was be utterly impossible to run a business with nearly all of their staff working from home. And even if they thought it was possible, it didn't sound particularly attractive because it just sounded too complicated and messy. And, you know, look where we are now. Um, you know, it, things can be done. And I think um, one of the things that, that we've done for years is, is collate all of the visitor numbers from all of our members and then publish them in the media in, in March. And I've, I've done some longitudinal research to look at are there common characteristics or behaviours on the part of those visitor attractions who sustainably and successfully grow their visitor numbers, but also diversify their visitor numbers as well. And uh, I, I do a presentation and a workshop on this. And funnily enough, there are, there are common behaviours. You can absolutely see them. And in that group of about six or seven behaviours, one of them is about appetite for risk on the part of the board and senior management. And the other one is about a confidence to foster creative partnerships with unusual suspects. Don't just work with the people who are kind of your natural neighbours, you know, either physically or theoretically, but actually, you know, this is something we were talking about at the beginning. Try and foster creative partnerships with people who are not like you, and therefore they bring something completely different to the party. That's that's going back to what we we talked about, about museums not learning from other museums and, you know, theatres not learning from other theatres because you're, you're, you're kind of just in the same challenges all the time. So looking at that kind of wider sector communication or sector cooperation even and seeing where the boundaries overlap and what you can do that, you know, like you said, the theme park or the zoo down the road might be doing, but you're a theatre, you know, how can you embrace some of the things that, that they're using? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my favourite examples recently um, is that I was down, um, I've managed to get out of London a couple of times uh, since September in the last three weeks. And I was down at Bristol, uh, going to see the Bristol Old Vic. And they're doing something really, really clever, which is they have just parted ways with their in-house catering company. And they've just decided that they want to be a community showcase. So they're getting in local Bristol restaurants and chefs to be their in-house caterer for a month, and they have a different one every month. And I, it's just blindingly brilliant because, A, they're connecting with their communities. They're showcasing the diversity of food in the local area. It's all kind of five-mile menu stuff, so it's all locally sourced. But it also means there's a new reason to come back every yeah. month. Even if Perfect. you don't go to the theatre to see a show, you'll go there to eat. And I just think that was genius. It is so, genius. I've been sharing that with a lot of museums and galleries um, and heritage attractions saying, actually, you know, if, if you're in between contracts or you're thinking about an interim period between catering contracts, why don't why don't you think about this? That is an absolutely brilliant idea, because I mean, I, I, I love attractions, but I'm a big foodie as well. So for me, I'd be looking and going, oh, well, I need to book a table at that place at least once a month now because I'm going to go back and I'm going to experience a different food or I've been I've really wanted to go to that person's restaurant how amazing I can combine eating that person's food with a show that's on at the same time it's a, it's a genius idea and it, and it really anchors the theatre in its community 
Um, and, and we've seen over the course of the last year that the reeking of your community and understanding your community and reflecting back who your community are through your work and your HR programs and your staff recruitment measures and all those kind of things, that's been absolutely key. Because um, if you lose your connection with community, you're, you're, you're lost and wandering. Yeah, completely agree. It's, it's, I think, for me personally, that's one of the, the best things that have come out of this. I mean, we, we, you know, as an individual, I've always been really key, like keen on kind of supporting like local independence and shopping locally anyway, but even more so since this happened, because you can see the effect of what's happened so drastically on your own community. You want to be able to do as much to support that as possible. I just, I'm really, that is such a great idea. I hope everyone that's listening picks up on that because I just think that is awesome. Well done then. Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast interview, but I can't not ask you what's next for Alva. What have you got planned that's coming next? It's been pretty full on year. Are the webinars going to continue? Are your daily bulletins going to continue for the foreseeable future? Sounds like you might need a little bit of a break at some point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, well, the the daily bulletins will certainly continue because I don't, I, you know, I don't think anything's going to change significantly until you know September or, or such. Um, the webinars are coming back. We took a, a month off from the the weekly webinars, so we had um, we had a webinar every Wednesday from the beginning of January until last month uh, with over 50 case studies from across the UK. I mean, they were all amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. And I think, by the way, that it's been through the webinars and also your work as well, that we've got to know what people are doing in a little bit more detail and from from unusual suspects in a way that we didn't really before. We always used to rely on, you know, big annual conferences to get hear case studies and stuff and and now we're just full of case studies everywhere so it's so i love that more generous more open more accessible more sharing environment that we now inhabit um so the webinars are coming back at the end of june they'll probably be fortnightly and our first webinars will be the latest wave of visitor sentiment research so what are people thinking about now are they confident about going back into attractions and are they confident about social distancing measures and those kind of things? And also we'll be doing case studies about post 21st of June, how visitor attractions are going to cope with that dilemma about being told on the one hand, you can open with no restrictions. But on the other hand, knowing well that their visitors require and expect some degree of social distancing and protection and safety measures. So how, how do you, how do you balance those two things? So those will be the first two, two webinars. And then beyond that, I, I suspect global domination. <laughs> of course, it's the obvious next step, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get Napoleonic about it all, but you know, I think we've got a good thing here that could be replicated <laughs> around the world. <laughs> well, that, on a, actually on that note, what can Alva, what can people that are listening, what can our listeners do to support Alva? Bear in mind that I've had the bomb, you know, the, the bombshell that it's just the two of you that are that are doing all of these things. What can our listeners do to, to help you back? Oh well, the 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 most useful thing, and um, and I've said this a lot, and honestly, it's it's been my complete savior, is that we wouldn't have been able to achieve things like the reduced rate of VAT for visitor attractions, continuation of furlough, the construction and the creation of the cultural recovery fund. Uh, I mean, all all of those critical measures for the tourism sector. I mean, the tourism sector, by a long country mile 
has been the part of the economy that's received the most financial support from government. And I think it's partly because we were hit first, hit hardest, and will take the longest to recover. But it's also because we've had amazing data. And I know data is a bit, you know, unsexy. But honestly, we, we couldn't have got through the meetings that we've had with Treasury and Number 10 and DCMS and Public Health England and Scottish, Welsh and Northern Ireland governments without the depth of really, really useful data that visitor attractions have been able to provide us. You know, what their percentage of furlough rates are, where they've had to make staff redundancies in what area, uh, where their visitor numbers have been affected, the the difference between um, the dependence on domestic and inbound tourism, all, you know, conversion rates in shops, average transaction transaction values, all of that kind of stuff has just been bliss to work with because it's really good, really solid, well-evidenced data. And as a lobbyist, that's just gold. So keep giving us information, anecdotes, case studies, and experiences as well, because those case studies can often feed through to government ministers in a way that, you know, just a raft of figures can't. If you can bring it to life, um, as I do, and particularly in small kind of epithets like, you know, sanitise the site, not the visitor experience, and you can't follow a penguin, you know, really short, understandable Sesame Street lobbying, that works. I love that. Keep sharing, keep cooperating, keep helping others, and we'll get through the other side in the best position that we possibly can. Yeah, and I'm confident of it, absolutely confident of it. Good, I'm really glad to hear that. So last question for you. We always end our podcast by asking our guests for a book that they love or a book that's helped shape their career in some way. Can you suggest one for us today? Actually, if I'm going to be really, really honest, I'm not sure that I'd be in my job today were it not for ladybird books. Right. That I had when I was a kid. Yeah. So everything from Marie Curie to the plant life of Africa from you know Joan of Arc through to you know Christopher Columbus, um, though honest, honestly, those Ladybird books uh, ignited my curiosity, and the more I got, the more I started just reading about heritage and history and and and, and sciences and those kind of things. So, uh, yeah, it's I mean it's not quite Brideshead revisited, but if I was going to. <laughs> Completely honest, it would be the collection of Ladybird books that my parents got for me from car boot sales and secondhand shops when I was a kid. Oh, I love that. I can remember them all lined up on the bookshelf as well with all their, the different coloured spines. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. All right, well, yeah. we'll choose one. Let's um, let's have a think off, off podcast and we'll choose one. And then, uh, as ever, if you want to win that book when we decide what it is, if you head over to our Twitter account and you retweet this episode announcement with, I want Bernard's book, then you're going to be in with the chance of winning it. Actually, I have got spare copies of the Ladybird Book of London from about 1960. So I'm very, very happy to donate it. Oh my gosh. Well, that would be fantastic. If you're happy to do that, then yeah. all right, listeners, get tweeting and you could be in with the chance of winning. That's a really lovely gift. Thank you. Um, Bernard I've loved having you on today thank you so much um, you are our season finale as well because we're going to have a little bit of a break over summer and we're going to come back again in October once uh, all of you listeners will be so busy over summer with plenty to do you'll, you'll, you'll have 
you'll have more interesting things to do to listen than listen to this podcast every day. So I'm really delighted that you could be our season finale. Thank you. I know how how busy you are and even more so having having had a chat today we'll put all of your contact details and everything into the show notes so people can find find where you are if you're not following bernard on twitter then one you're a fool and two where have you been for the last 15 months because for me personally if there's been anything that i've needed to understand about what the sector's going through or go and find it's either speak to people on this podcast or it's go and follow Alva and Bernard on Twitter and I'll always find out the answer to what I want so thank you for being such a constant support and thank you for for all of the hard work that you've been putting out there through through this pandemic we really appreciate it oh no it's my my pleasure and for those of you who do follow me on Twitter I can only apologize for my behavior on Eurovision Song Contest night (laughs) Uh, I just got carried away and it was inappropriate (laughs) what goes on in Eurovision stays on Eurovision Bernard (laughs) don't worry about that thank you very much Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.